Welcome to a recording of a La Trobe Asia seminar. I'm Nick Bisley from La Trobe Asia. Our speaker is Richard McGregor, a journalist and an author with extensive experience in East Asia. He worked for The Australian in Tokyo and Hong Kong and established the paper's first China bureau in Beijing in 1997. He later headed the Financial Times Bureau in Shanghai, Beijing and Washington. He's the author of The Party, widely regarded as amongst the very best books on China's Communist Party, and his forthcoming book, Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, the US and the Struggle for Global Power, is published on the 5th of September 2017. He spoke at La Trobe University on the 1st of August 2017 on the topic of his new book. So the book mainly focuses on Sino-Japanese relations, but Sino-Japanese relations post-war uh, in the context of uh, um, the American-made post-war in East Asia, Pax Americana. Um, and really, I haven't, didn't, you know, my elevator pitch for this book is not sensational because I've really just set out to tell the story. It's a narrative story since the 50s. Uh, of the relationship. You know, if you go to the UK, for example, you'll see there's an entire cottage industry of books about the UK and France, France and Germany, the UK and Europe and the like. Uh, you know, if you go to the States, there's a cottage industry of books there about the US and the Middle East, the US and China, that sort of thing. Uh, I guess in Australia, we've got a sort of emerging or burgeoning cottage industry of books on you know, Australia and Asia uh, in different forms and the like. But you'll find almost nothing uh, in an up-to-date, accessible, read readable form about China and Japan, which is a highly consequential relationship. Um, you know, if you think about at the moment the war in the Middle East, the war with ISIS, for example, one thing we don't care about with ISIS uh, is the impact on the caliphate's GDP. These days, we don't even care about the impact on the price of oil. Uh, China and Japan is the second and third world's biggest economies. Uh, if there were to be any kind of military conflict um, uh, between China and Japan, that's the entire global economy, one way or another, goes through these two con countries, along with Taiwan and, and, uh, and South Korea. Um, uh, I haven't written a book saying the coming war with China and Japan, but uh, there's no doubt that some possibility of military conflict uh, is now closer than it has been for a long time. Uh, certainly in my book I talk about in 2012, which was the last time there was a clash over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands, the disputed territory that the Chinese did think about using military force at that stage, um, but they backed off uh, for a good reason, right? Because if, you know, if China and Japan do have a war, uh, let's say Japan loses, you know, that the government falls, but if China loses, that's kind of regime change. You know, China can't afford to lose another war with uh, Japan. Um, in any case, uh, you know, they, they are closer to a military conflict than they ever have, have been. And I think in 10 years, they'll probably still be closer because of various unresolved issues between them and China's greater ambitions. Um, so quite apart from it being an interesting story, it's, I think it's a highly consequential story. And of course, it's not just about China and Japan, because if you involve China and Japan, you inevitably involve the US because the US has set the architecture in East Asia really since the end of the war. And it really basically stays in place today, um, even though I think most people would agree it's not sustainable uh, in the face of China's rise. So the other thing to think about, of course, with Pax Americana is, is the US itself. And when you think about it, you know, it's um, 
we're getting worried now because the US has been in Afghanistan for you know, 15, 20 years. Well, they've been in South Korea and Japan for 70 years or so. Uh, you know, is, that, is that just the way it is? Uh, is the US have to be in Asia for another 70 years for East Asia to remain stable and prosperous? Um, one person who certainly doesn't think so is Donald Trump. Um, when Trump was asked in 2015, he gave an, in, an interview to The Economist uh, magazine, and this part didn't actually make it into the paper. Uh, he gave an interview to The Economist, um, and this was before anybody thought he'd even be the Republican nominee, let alone president. And Trump uh, was asked, you know, well, you know, why shouldn't, uh, why, should, why shouldn't the US be defending Japan against China? That would be terrible, would it not, if they didn't? And Trump gave a very Trumpian answer. And his first thought, of course, he, he always likes to emote a little bit. Uh, he talked about how he was at the port in Los Angeles and um, you know, never forget that you know, uh, it, the 80s, Trump's formative political time, you know, Japan was the America's big enemy then, not China. And Trump was a notorious Japan basher in the 1980s. So Trump, first of all, talked about in this 2015 interview about being at the port in Los Angeles and sitting there and watching all these Japanese cars come off the container ship. Uh, and he said, he said, all these cars just pouring off these ships. And, and he says, we send them beef. It's a tiny fraction. And by the way, they don't even want it. Um, so then he got to addressing the question about China and Japan. First of all, he had to say, by the way, I love China, I love Japan. Um, but he was basically unfazed about the fact that Japan might have to stand on its own against China. And here's what he said. He said, if we step back, Japan will protect themselves very well. Remember when Japan used to beat China routinely in wars? You know that, right? Japan used to beat China all the time. Why are we defending them at all? Um, he's rarely reassuring when he's unplugged, uh, or plugged, I guess, but um, it's quite interesting because, of course, Trump ran a sustained attack on the post-war order in the election campaign. And I think the post-war order in East Asia, which, of course, Australia shelters under and has benefited from, uh, has become so much part of the furniture that no one was really able to make a defense of it. It was kind of like a sitting duck in the election campaign, uh, and therefore he did very well out of it. Anyway, to my book, which is all about that. Um, there's a number of themes running through it. Um, first of all, how China and Japan relate to each other. Two enormously uh, now wealthy, um, powerful at different times, um, culturally rich, uh, independent-minded uh, Asian countries. It's really striking, I, I haven't gone back to the 6th, 7th century when they first started to interact, but it's really striking how Japan and China, quite rightly over many years, have demanded that the West treat them as equals. Obviously, the Western, Western countries suborned them at different times, uh, treated them as racially inferior and the like. Um, and they've, they've made sure that the West treats them as equals, but Japan and China have never really treated each other as equals. Uh, it's either been one as the big brother, one as the little brother, one has been on top. And of course, we're at a period now where uh, China is increasingly on top and expects Japan to sort of, you know, nestle under. And of course, Japan won't do that. So that's the first thing. It's an interesting relationship in any case. You have to understand history, but more to the point, you have to understand the history of the history wars in East Asia. Um, um, that's another theme. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, we have to, as I understand, 
as I mentioned before, the other theme is understand the US role. Uh, and without getting too nerdy about it, and we, we can, I can certainly talk about this later, um, you know, the post-war order in East Asia comes essentially from the San Francisco Treaty, which is the treaty which was used to return sovereignty to Japan after, uh, at the end of the occupation. And that sets the template for the order we have now. It was after the San Francisco Treaty that the US did bilateral security deals with Australia, the Philippines, Thailand, New Zealand, and the like. So China wasn't part of that. China looks at the Cairo and Potsdam declarations before then, which give China a much greater role uh, and which basically give relegate Japan to a much inferior role in East Asia as the losing party forever. So you've got to understand also that the different templates each country has for the regional order uh, as well. Um, <clears throat> a number of other themes, the reversal of fortune, as I said, we, um, some of us, in fact, most of us in this room look old enough to remember when in fact in the 80s, you know, the US considered Japan to be its, the biggest threat to its national security. Uh, since then, of course, there's been a stunning reversal of order, both in the US vis-a-vis -vis Japan, but most particularly China compared to Japan. Trade is very important, uh, I think, as well. Um, and they're all the major, major themes of the book. Um, so it's important to remember that um, the dynamics between the three countries have changed dramatically. Um, if you look at the US-Japan alliance, and that is, uh, people forget, I think the most important bilateral military alliance that the US has. Uh, the largest US naval base offshore is at Yokosuka, just south of Tokyo, uh, and the like. Um, it's, been, it's really going, in fact, at the base in Yokosuka, where I was at the end of last year, that was the old Imperial Navy base, which started in about 1875 or something. So it was a Japanese base for 70 years. Now it's been a US base for 70 years. Um, uh, you know, how long does that go on for? Um, but in any case, the US-Japan alliance, when it started off in the 50s, was a highly unequal alliance. It was basically the Americans said, okay, you know, you get about fixing your economy, we'll handle foreign policy, uh, and the like, and the Japanese did that, and they did it actually quite brilliantly, in fact, too, too well for the Americans' liking, as it turned out. But since then, the relationship has evolved to where it is these days, where it's a much more equal relationship. It used to be the Americans would come in all the time and say to the Japanese, come on, do more, spend more on defense, be more active with your military, and the Japanese would always say, oh, no, 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 sorry, we can't do that. Remember that constitution you wrote for us? You know, we're pacifists, sorry about that. Um, well, that's changed now because under Abe, I mean, prior to him as well, uh, it didn't just happen under Abe, but Japan these days has much more greater flexibility, flexibility with its military, much more willing to use it. Um, 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 and of course, the, what they say these days, they're always saying to the Americans, come on America, you do more. Um, it's not just us. And so the balance has changed between the US and Japan and it's a much more equal relationship, not a sort of semi-colonial one, which it uh, was previously. Um, we also shouldn't forget with Japan, uh, even though it isn't a tight alliance with the US, we shouldn't forget how much deep down many Japanese, particularly conservative Japanese, really resent America. The ones most in favor of the alliance are quite resentful about America. Why is that? Well, they lost the war. People never, get, never forget that easily. 
They resent the fact the Americans imposed the Constitution on them, which restricted their military. They're angry about how the US opened relations with China without telling them. That was a big shock. The trade wars, which basically went on for 30 years until 1995, engendered a lot of business. And of course, they hate the Americans lecturing them about history uh, as well. So the people who are most in favor of the US alliance are in fact the ones who have a big chip on their shoulder about it. And Prime Minister Abe is a great example of somebody like that. Um, so much so, of course, that when the US did open relations with uh, uh, China in 1972, 71-72, uh, and you go back and look at um, the conversations between Kissinger and Zhou Enlai, I didn't bring the transcripts today, uh, it's all about Kissinger trying to persuade Zhou Enlai that, um, you know, don't worry about the Japanese. You know, Joe and Lai says, you know, what are you doing in Japan? You know, and uh, the only way Kissinger could sell Joe and Lai on U.S. troops being in Asia was that they're there to keep the Japanese under control. Um, and of course, Kissinger was deeply antagonistic to the Japanese. He didn't like them. Um, you know, there's very funny stuff, actually. I think I have a lot of funny stuff in my book about this. You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't like dealing with them. He had to handle trade. Once, you know, when he was invited to dinner at the Japanese ambassador's house in Washington, he said, I said, I hate going there. He said, every time I go there, they serve me Wiener schnitzel. Um, you know, so he didn't like anything about them. Um, and, and so him and Joe and Lai both delighted in talking about how difficult and, uh, and sort of weird the Japanese were. But that was also a clever way for Kissinger to persuade the Japanese as to why U.S. troops should stay there. So you know, the U.S. used to be the cork in the Jap bottle of Japanese militarism. These days, of course, if you look at it, uh, you know, the U.S. says uh, to Japan, well, we're here to, you know, the cork in the bottle of Chinese militarism. Um, and at the time, I think both statements were probably true. So things have changed in that respect. It's also changed, I think, uh, people forget about this, um, Oh, so I forgot to mention in terms of the Japanese resenting um, uh, the Americans uh, chipping away at their sovereignty, dignity, independence with their military there. In the last um, US election campaign when Trump was raging about Japan and China and saying Japan should get the bomb and everything like that, Joe Biden said, he says, doesn't Trump not understand that we wrote Japan's constitution to say they could not be a nuclear power? Which of course was absolutely accurate, but an extremely aggravating thing for him to say. So the second thing, of course, is that uh, China. What does China think of the US troops in America? In the 1950s and the like, um, uh, that's when the US had an embargo on China. Uh, uh, they raged against the presence of US troops. Post-1972, once they had diplomatic relations, uh, China did 180-degree about turn. And then they said, OK, you can stay here. You can keep the Japanese under control. But more to the point, uh, they gradually even warmed to the presence of American troops even more, <coughs> particularly after 1979 when the Chinese started to build their economy. Um, the most important thing for China, n now less so, then particularly was a stable international environment. And that's what the US troops do provide. Um, you know, if you think about East Asia, um, the Korean Civil War has never been solved. The Chinese Civil War has never been solved. US Sino-Japanese tensions continue apace. And the, one of the main reasons, not the only reasons, 
that uh, East Asia has had this sort of industrial revolution like uh, growth in wealth is because the Americans have just sat there and handled the military side of the equation uh, and kept the peace. And the Chinese were quite happy about that. They didn't shout it from the rooftops because it's kind of a little bit embarrassing um, for an anti-imperialist, anti-foreign ruling communist party to have to thank uh, Uncle Sam for all of that. Um, but that started to change. So that's changing as well. Started to change in the mid 90s, Taiwan crisis, when the Chinese started to think, well, you're not just here to keep um, the Japanese under control, you're here to run our lives as well. And of course, since then, there's many turning points. The Taiwan crisis, the most important one. Uh, and that's when um, um, the Chinese, I guess, you know, military buildup really started uh, apace, the sorts of fruits of which we're seeing now. And so we're at the point now where the Chinese are, it's not quite like, you know, thanks very much America, you can go home now sort of thing. But certainly the, I think the best role for the US in Asia in Chinese eyes these days is a kind of bourgeois decline. In other words, to leave the region slowly, not cause any big disturbances along the way, and gradually um, will fill your space as the hegemonic power in the region. And there should be no surprise about China wanting to do that. You know, they're a big power, they naturally want um, to run, run the region themselves. Uh, on top of that, if you were Chinese, you would have legitimate security concerns about being surrounded by American bases. You also would not want to rely on the US to um, keep secure the Malacca Straits where a ton of your oil and energy uh, resources come through. So it's worthwhile remembering that the various countries have been aligned and antagonistic uh, over many different ways in, in the last 30, 40 years. Um, in 1990, the late Zbigniew Brzezinski talked about how the, you know, um, the US and uh, Japan should form a new block called Amaripon. Uh, 15 years later, there was another terrible neologism. Neil Ferguson, the historian, said, oh, actually, US and China should come together in Chimerica. He sort of dumped that a few years later. There's a third <coughs> possibility, one which is very much underestimated. Um, and I'm going to give a trigger warning because I'm on campus, uh, because this is a uh, racially insensitive word I'm about to utter. Um, but what about if China and Japan get together? Much underestimated issue, because if China and Japan got together, uh, that would be the certain way to screw US power in Asia. Um, there, this was actually, it's been talked about in different ways that former Nixon speechwriter, New York Times columnist William Sapphire wrote a book about that in which he had, he imagined China and Japan coming together and he called them, you know, the CIA calls the Chinese communists the Chai Coms, spelt Chi Coms, and he called this new group the Chai Japs or Chi Japs. Um, so leaving aside that, it's very much, very important to think about China and Japan being allied or at least uh, reassured with each other and aligned together. And in this respect, if you think about it, Japan is China's great failure foreign policy failure. Because if you wanted, as I mentioned, to screw the US, to sort of render them useless in the region, if you were a Chinese strategist, the way you would do that would be to pull China away from America, even one third of the way. 
and and that would sort of that would un start to unwind all the sorts of relationships <coughs> that the U.S. Um, has in the region. But every time China has had a chance of doing that, they tried in the 50s actually, and it failed. That was mainly because the, of the Americans. Uh, most immediately after the post Cold War, 1992, the, they had another opportunity in 2009 when a Chinese government, a Japanese government, came in, which was highly favourable pro-China. But you know, China is. Japan is kind of the bone in the throat of China. They can't bring themselves um, to sort of uh, you know, embrace them or try to re-embrace them or um, um, uh, reassure them. Now, why is that? <clears throat> Specifically on Sino-Japanese ties. I mean, the two countries, even though they've been neighbors, they've never been close, never been close. It's not like Europe where you have, you know, European, you know, intermarriage, throne swapping, you know, German royals on the English throne or the like. Um, there's no crossbreeding of the ruling classes in China and Japan ever. Uh, Japan will tell you they have never been a tributary state to China and they never will. Um, when they did come together, finally in 1972, um, am I talking too long or not? Because, no. yeah. Okay, you tell me how to shut up. Um, in 1970, 1972, and once, once again, this is getting into the weeds a little bit, China and Japan uh, forged diplomatic ties in about 80 days after the Nixon opening to China. They did it in a real rush, and at the time it was considered a fantastic success. But of course, in retrospect, I think it was a, a great mistake on both sides how they went about it, because they they settled everything. They pushed aside the war. They pushed aside history. Uh, there was no apology, no reparations. The, you know, the Japanese didn't have to talk about the war and the like. There's, you know, there's no memorials the Japanese have built in China to acknowledge what they've done. And at the time, of course, the Chinese didn't ask for them. Um, this was an elite agreement done at the very top when Chairman Mao and Zhou Enlai were uh, in complete control of the country. Um, and we, you know, the conventional, maybe not amongst an educated audience like I've got here today, but the conventional sort of, you know, uh, um, narrative about this is that, well, Japan was horrible to China during the war and they never said sorry and the Chinese people are still angry about it. Well, maybe. But if you go back and look at how this was handled, let me give you this quote. You cannot be asked to apologize every day, can you? It's not good for a nation to feel constantly guilty, and we can understand this point. And who said that? That's Chairman Mao in the 50s with Japanese delegations. And of course, Chairman Mao famously in 1964, when he met another Japanese delegation, he thanked the Japanese for invading. Uh, he said, we should be building monuments to you because if you hadn't invaded, then uh, we would never have defeat, defeated the nationalists. Um, it's always important to remember with the Communist Party when they celebrated, for example, the 70th anniversary of the war recently, their victory in the anti-fascist war, they did very little of the fighting against the Japanese. That was mainly done by the, the nationalists. So that's the first point, is on history. China never talked about giving an apology. They never worried about history very much. Um, if you look at the People's Daily in the 1950s, there's no mention of the Nanjing Massacre, except for once, and that was Johnny to beat the Americans over the head with for 
consorting with Japanese war criminals after the war. So the issue of history and the lack of Japanese apology uh, really didn't become an issue till about the mid 80s and in a big way until the mid 90s. Uh, and this played, of course, into the worst instincts of the Japanese and the Japanese conservatives because they didn't want to give an apology either. They didn't want to have the big, big domestic internal fight to force that through their system. Um, and so ever since then, I think the two sides have kind of resented each other because the Japanese say, well, you never asked us for an apology before and then, then we gave you one and we gave you all this foreign aid, ODA, billions of dollars. You know, the Japanese were incredibly helpful to Japan, China after 89 and you keep asking for us an apology. And of course the Chinese say, well, you should naturally be giving us an apology. You know, we were kind to you and you, you've repaid our kindness with cruelty. Um, and so they've all become extremely cynical about history and history is totally politicized in that respect. Uh, there was one Japanese leader, you know, Takeshita, who was one of the big sort of faction leaders when Japan was very powerful. And he said, he said, oh, I said, we can apologize as much as China wants. It's free and very soon China will be tired of asking for apologies. Um, actually, they never did become tired of asking for them. The other issue that was not solved is the territorial issue, the uh, Senkaku Diayu Islands. Uh, they might look like useless shags of rocks, but the reason they became contested uh, in the late, late, seven, uh, sorry, late 60s, early 70s was because people thought there was oil there. Nobody much cared about it then, but certainly when they China and Japan uh, forged diplomatic ties and the like. Um, they swept it under the carpet and the, sort of the, there's a vast Jesuitical debate about the language used then. The Chinese say it was shelved, which means the Japanese acknowledged the dispute and would come back at another time. Uh, and the Japanese say the Chinese said, don't worry about it, forget about it. Um, and that's of course the islands these days, which have a constant Chinese military presence surrounding them. Uh, just to remind the Japanese who's boss there. Um, I'll just make a few other points. What are the other factors in why re relations are so poisonous? Um, personalities matter. Uh, you might remember President Jiang Zemin. Uh, he's a notorious uh, Japan basher, Japan hater. He would always berate the Japanese in meetings about history. There's two theories about Jiang Zemin and why he felt so strongly about Japan. The first one is that his family were part of the anti-Japanese resistance uh, and his uncle died. Actually, his uncle was killed by Chinese warlords, which tells you who they were really fighting, not the Japanese. But, um, but you know, his family grew up near Nanjing uh, and the like. Um, and uh, they, you know, and so it's in his bones. And when Jiang Zemin would meet people he would always berate the Japanese. Even with the Americans, he would always rant about the Japanese and tell stories about his childhood. That's the conventional story. Maybe true, probably is true. The alternative story though, is that Jiang Zemin's family were collaborators. And so the fact that he's so anti-Japanese is to compensate for this bad family background. Um, and this view that his family were collaborators is mainly propagated by the Falun Gong. <laughs> And of course, the Falun Gong have a lot of reason to hate Jiang Zemin because he, he treated them brutally. 
But when I was doing research for this book, I used to go and see all the Chinese Japan experts in Beijing and Shanghai. And I would always ask them about this theory about Jiang Zemin's family being collaborators. And, uh, and, he, and they would always, they wouldn't, you know, even the sort of hardliners, that none of them would go, oh, that's shocking. They all said to me, um, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, right, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, pretty normal. Um, so where does the US fit into this, just finally, I think? You know, the US and Japan, I think the alliance 70, 80 years on is tighter than ever. Uh, it's more military, uh, more, military, more militarily balanced um, alliance because of uh, Shinzo Abe managed, man, managing to reinterpret the constitution to give the Japanese military a chance to fight alongside uh, the US. The two militaries, and you often see a lot of political friction between the US and Japan, but the Pentagon and the Japanese military are very tight and they are, their militaries are increasingly interoperable. In other words, they work together very closely, which they didn't used to be able to do. Uh, and that's at a time, of course, when China is more powerful than ever. And you know, nobody knows what's gonna happen in China in the next 10, 20 years. But on balance, you'd have to prepare for the fact that they, the economy will continue to grow and the military will, be, will become larger and more capable. Um, and China's aim is to, and so the very front line of Pax Americana these days, it's moved, moved around a bit over you know, 30, 40, 50 years, but it's right through Japan. That's the front line. And China's aim in East Asia, as in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea, you know, China wants to sure make, every, make sure everybody knows that China in Asia is a geopolitical fact for the US, the US in Asia is a geopolitical choice, and China intends to make that choice more and more expensive for the US and more and more difficult. And I think the place you'll see that play out, you'll see it in the South China Sea. I haven't really touched on that much today, and I'm not a real expert on that. But I think the front line for that game being played out is in uh, Japan and Japan itself.